Okay, we're in Corinthians, and uh, if you've got a Bible, then turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you haven't got one, I think somebody might be dishing them out. Uh, and if we're in the ones um, that we've dished out, I think it's page 1147. There's a hand up here. We need a Bible. Get that man a Bible. Brilliant. Okay, so we're going to read this passage. It's quite a lot in this passage, but then hopefully we're going to kind of do something a little bit different with it. Um, I don't know if you've been around City Church for the last sort of three weeks or so. seems like we've been like concentrating quite a lot on, as my mum would say, sex. <laughs> She's of a generation, right? When you say the word sex, for some reason she, she can't like say it. It's like, odd and when we challenged her on it we said mom why do you go why you know just say sex she goes thanks I'm like, why do you do that she goes I don't do that I said yes you do all the time but we're not going to really concentrate on that today so some of you are like we've done a lot of that already well not done a lot of it we've I, anyway I'm going to dig a hole up right now anyway so uh, we're going to look at this and hopefully uh, we'll be able to draw out a few other things in this passage is that all right I don't know about you, but sometimes we can get so caught up with what's going on in the immediate of life. And uh, sometimes we need someone just to help us take a step back and get the bigger picture of what it's all about. And just going to, I think, put this thing on the screen. Anybody know what that is? It's, it's a detail of something. A, yeah, a ring pull of a can. You know, and I think often life is like this. We can get so consumed with the detail and what's right in front of us. But actually, sometimes we need to, if you press the button, you need to step out to get the bigger picture of what on earth life is really all about. And actually, what's important. And that's what Paul does a little bit. And we're going to look at in this uh, passage. Okay, so I'm going to have a go at reading most of it out. We might, just for time's sake, jump a bit. Let's see. Chapter 6. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, you are not competent to judge trivial cases. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother goes to law against another, and this is in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not? rather be wronged why not rather be cheated instead you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers do you not know do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters or adulterers or prostitutes or homosexual offenders thieves or the greedy or drunkards or slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the, name, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Okay, take a breath. Here we go again. 
everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will also raise us. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee then from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Right then. Lord God, we pray and ask that out of this passage today, you would just challenge us a little bit. You would get a grip of our hearts in some way, that we would leave this place with something of you and your truth echoing in our hearts for the, for, for, for the next week or two and how, help us to make good decisions. Shape us, we pray. Amen. Okay, so before we get to cha- the next chapter, which is chapter 7, Paul begins to deal with all of the questions that the Corinthian church actually has and has written to Paul and asked him about. But before we get there, Paul, in this passage, wants to give the church a perspective check. Okay? He wants to come alongside the church and say, yes, you've got all these questions, you've got all of these issues, but I want you to just take a step back and I want to give you the big picture today. I want to give you the tools to deal with some of the things that you're presently wrestling and struggling with. And what he does, I think, in this chapter, he, he takes us on a bit of a time travel. Did you notice what he does? Here we are in the present, and there's some stuff going on, and what he does is he goes, he goes I'm going to take you into the future. You know? And I want you to look at the present in light of the future. And then what he does is he travels kind of back in time to the present and then goes back into the past. And he drags the past into the present as well. And so as we read this passage, we end up with the future and the past existing in the present to deal with the issues that the Corinthian church has got to deal with. And so that's where we're going today. Is that all right? Doctor Who, here we go. Step into the TARDIS. We're going into the future. So what is occurring, what's occurring in Corinth? What on earth is going on in Corinth at this point? Well, there's some issues, isn't there? He's saying there's some disputes. People are kicking off and they're taking one another to court. He's saying if you have any dispute with with another, um, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints. So what we have here in the Christian community, in the church, are a number of people that have got disputes with one another. And what are they doing? They're not trying to deal with it in the Christian community, but they're taking it outside of the Christian community into the secular courts of the day. And as a result of that, it's bringing the church into disrepute. And to deal with the issue at hand, what Paul does is brilliant. He employs some eschatological irony. You're like, you're what, 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 what? 
What he does is he says, listen, some of you are in court, but let me tell you about a future court. Let me tell you about what will happen in the future. And here's the first do, do you not know that kicks in. I think there's five in this passage. He says, do you not know you are going to judge the world with Jesus? Look at that. Where does it say it? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases now? He transports them from the present and it's like he drags them to the future and he's sort of saying to them, you have a, de a destiny and you're going to stand with Jesus. If you, the church in Corinth, are followers of Jesus, you love him, then one day in the future you are going to stand with Christ and you are going to judge the cosmos and the ridiculous thing is you can't deal with your issues right now with one another. <coughs> that is a perspective check, isn't it? Now I'm a dad and I've got two girls and sometimes, very rarely, the girls may have a little argument. You know, it's very rare. One of my encouragements of my holiday you know, was that my girls behave really well. They're just lovely. They are. I'm not, okay, I'm biased, but, you know, I'm a, and dads are allowed to be. But very occasionally, I have to give a perspective to my kids. I shouldn't have done that. It looks like I was about to give them a woohoo. That's not the case. I don't do that. I don't need to do that. Often I just say to them, you are better than this. And that's what Paul is doing right here. He's saying, you're better than this. You have a future. And we need the future day that one day we will sit with Christ, or even stand with Christ, and you're going to meet him face to face. And in the light of that, we need that future to crash into our present so that we can make better judgments. Who is he talking to? Well, it seems like, as I've done a bit of digging, it seems like the people that he's talking to are not the poor in the community. But actually, it's the rich and the influential. Because it was very unlikely that the poor would even be taken to court. They had little or no rights. The likelihood is this. Paul is speaking to a number of Christians who are probably business-orientated and, and managers of estates. <clears throat> and the issue that's at hand here is this. It seems like there are a couple of Christians who are trying to rip one another off in their business environment. That doesn't compute, does it? It doesn't sit well with the trajectory of their future. And so Paul, what is Paul doing? In this moment, he's not only wanting to make some connections in time, but he wants the church to connect their lives a bit more. From the public into the personal as well. And what we do over here is really important and it does affect what we do here. Is it Forrest Gump? I love Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. 
Gump. I love it. It's one of my all-time favorite films. But that moment where he's sat on the bench, you know, when he, he sat there on that bench waiting for his bus, and he turns to that lady and goes, my mama, she says, laugh like a box chocolate. <laughs> That's pretty rubbish. But anyway, you know, it's true, isn't it? And, and I think there's some truth in that, in that life is, has a whole load of variety to it, doesn't it? All right, Ali. You know, there's loads of variety in life, loads of experiences. And let's be honest, sometimes we don't quite know what's around the corner. And so there is some truth in that, but that's where it stops. Because life was never meant to be a box of chocolates where we sort of segment life up. And the world, and I think the world conspires to Christians, and it wants to sort of tear life apart and keep life segmented and separated out. And here in this passage, Paul is doing the absolute reverse. He's trying to grab the strings of our lives, the strands of our lives, and he's trying to pull them together under Christ and say, what you do out here in the public or out here in the private or here in the business world and how you deal with people is really, really important. It does affect who you are and how you operate and who God's called you to be. And so he's pulling the strands of life together. And so he really is beginning to challenge the integrity of the church. And actually, in particular, these people that were buying and selling property. And even though maybe one or two of them, or one person, has done the dirty on the other, as you read that passage, he's saying... Even though you've got to, sometimes it's important to rectify wrongs, how you do it is really important. Because you can do it with grace that builds the other person up, isn't that right? Or you can do it in a way that even though it's, you're pursuing righteousness, it will then undermine the witness of the, of the greater community. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying these people in business are operating in a way where it's starting to shoot the church in the foot. And as a result, when the community looks at the church's witness, they go, actually, you've got no authority because these people are operating without integrity. You see what's going on? So he's taking this situation and he's going, let's have a conversation about the future. Hey, because one day, you're going to be judging with Jesus the world. Now, any good life coach, and I think this is what Paul is doing here, he's a good life coach would sit with somebody and say to them and say, brother, what are your goals in life? What, what kind of a person do you want to be? Where do you want to be in 10 years? And we might come up with some, you know, Andrew's smirking over there because me and him have done a bit of this, haven't we, you know, many moons ago. And we, and, we, and we do this whole kind of, well, I'd like to be this kind of person and I'd want to have this in my life, you know. And a good life coach would then put these goals and aspirations up on a board and then what they do is they work backwards. They say, that's where you want to be. Yeah, Paul's doing that. He's saying, where you're called to be and where you want to be is with Jesus at the end. So let's work backwards now. How you're operating right now, is it on the same trajectory? I think the church goes, actually, no. Let's be brutally honest here. There's a gap. We're going to end up over here when we should have been up there. And so Paul is pulling the future into the present. Or he's transporting us in the present to the future and saying, let's live in the light 
of the future when we're going to meet Jesus one day face to face. Now, I've got to be honest with you. There's something incredibly exciting about that. You know, you guys have just got married. You know, but you were standing there. You know, I saw you. You were stood there. You were like, yeah. And you turned. And I thought you were just going to greet right then and there. But Chuck beat you to it. You know. <laughs> but, you know, there's that anticipation, isn't there? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to meet my wife. And, and, it's, you know, and there's an anticipation in the church, isn't it? One day we're going to meet Jesus face to face. And all this is going to be different. And, and suddenly there's, it's me and him. And yeah, and us and him. And brilliant. But there's also a tinge of, ooh, with it. Isn't there? How have I lived? Oh, Lord. And Paul, in chapter 4, refers to this day. This day that's supposed to temper how we live. He says, because the day, when you see the day in capitals, he's referring to that day. The day when God wraps it all up and Jesus comes again. And all of us will, in a blink of an eye, changed. And all the pants and rubbish stuff in our lives will be gone. And the deal is this, what will be left? Get excited about that. Because let's be honest, there'll be no more disease, crying, greeting. There'll be no more rubbish that we all have to wrestle with. But I ask a question, what will be left in my life? What will be left when I bring it to him and go, this was me. This was the full amount of me that's still good and right and good. That's not been burned up. Chapter 4, he says this. The day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. There is something really sobering. And yet really exciting about this moment. Oh, it's a quality moment. There you go. He's getting your attention. So, so what he does is he brings the future, doesn't he, into the present. And then he sticks with it for a little bit longer in the second half of this first section of this chapter. Because he says then, another do, not, do you not know. And that comes in verse 9. He says, do you not know, what you're going to judge the world, do you not know that wicked people will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he's keeping their focus on that day, and he's saying, if you live in a particular way, you will not inherit all of the good stuff that God has given you and, and wants to give you. And he makes that list, doesn't he? And it's quite a whew, poignant list that kind of deals with most areas of our lives whether it's the intimacy of you know, sex, sex and sexual immorality to actually other selfish ambition, lust and greed, slander, you know, all that kind of stuff. And in that moment, he's saying none of that fits that trajectory. And therefore, if it doesn't fit, what have you got to do with it? You've got to jettison it. Because if you keep it close and you keep living in it, what is the trajectory? you'll miss out. That's gutting. And I think Paul is sort of saying to this church that he started, you know, he's saying, if you keep living like this, you're going to miss all of the amazing promises and eternal promises that God has said over your life. And he's gutted that some folks in that community are not taking him seriously that is really quite sobering. 
And as you look at that list, the reality is those lists, that, they, they, they kind of, they come from a different source. You see, the kingdom of God, when you read the Bible, when you read the New Testament, when you listen to Jesus, and he says, the kingdom of God is a kingdom that gives. It's a kingdom that breathes life into people. But that list is a, from a kingdom that seeks to take from others to benefit ourselves. Think about when it starts to talk about adultery. You're nicking, you're stealing somebody else's affection that doesn't belong to you, but belongs to somebody else. That stealing then that produces pain and hurt. He said, if you pursue greed, which is all about me, and pulling all of the resources of the world, but it's for me, what actually in effect is, you're trying to save your life, but the reality is you'll lose it and end in isolation. Is that the trajectory you want to be on, church? That's what Paul's saying. And so, as we look at that, we go, actually, I want my life to be shaped in a way that I am in line with that amazing future that God has promised us. And that's what Paul, I think, is trying to get at. And, and then he shifts gear, right, doesn't he? So he's, he's been pulling the future into the present or pulling the present into the future. And then in verse 11, he shifts gear. He says this, um, he says, and, and, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So he's made this list. He says, you know, and that's a particular road that many people have been on. And then he says, and you were there, but you are no longer there. What's he doing now? He's moving from, from the future, and he's now dragging them through the present to look over their shoulders to the past. And not just their own past, but a past day in history. See that? He's saying, you were those things, but now you are different. Something has broken in to your past. And not just your past, but everybody's past. And he points to a day. A moment in history. The cross. And so Paul is saying the cross of Christ. Jesus himself, in a day in history, was nailed to a cross. And in that moment, your life and my life has changed. And so he gets them to identify with their pasts, but he gets them to look beyond that to Christ. See what he's doing? He's saying we need to remember the past. It's like Corinthians have had a bump on the head and they've forgotten some stuff. They've forgotten what they're called to in the future and it seems like they're forgetting or they've forgotten what's gone on in the past. And the past is this, that Jesus has come that God loved the world so much he sent his son to do what? To save us. To break into our sinful behavior. And he says there to do three things. To wash us. The cross washes us of our sin and our past. 
Uh, Victoria and I, I was joking with these guys, um, we went to Turkey on holiday. It was great, lovely and warm. We love all of that. Try to top up the tan a little bit, you know. Otherwise you end up look, you know, remaining like a white milk bottle, you know. But anyway, so we're out there and sunbathing and swimming and we love all of that. So we were down on the sea one afternoon and uh, I always like to push things a little bit. So I swam out quite far and they have these like buoys, you know, or buoys in the waters that, that, that are connected with ropes and you're not really meant to go beyond that. So I went right up onto the ropes. And there was a reason why you're not meant to go beyond the ropes. Because this is where the banana boat you know, the guys in the speedboats come screaming down and they generally have the, like the big yellow, you know, banana boat and there's like people hanging on, you know. Or There was one there uh, that I hadn't seen before. Uh, it was like a, I don't know, they called it the flying fish. Anyone seen this? It's like a huge inflatable. It's like three people like hanging on for dear life. And the faster it gets pulled, it actually comes out of the water. It's brilliant. So I was sat watching these guys, you know, and then oh, I think something went a bit wrong. And at one point, it got kind of span out of control, and they got ceremoniously dumped into the water at quite, quite a speed. Anyway, so I'm there, chilling out, you know, holding on to this boy, enjoying the sun. Speedboat comes past me. The wake is like, you know, I am getting seriously washed. Paul is talking about a moment in history that changes everything, and that now we live in the wake of the cross. He's saying to the community in Corinth, you were that, but now Jesus has washed and made you clean. And that echoes now through all, all eternity for you and me. Some of us today are thinking, I've forgotten my past. I've forgotten what God has done. God has washed me. I remember the day I was at St. Macker and Scott said something and I knew it was time for me to give my life to Jesus. And I stood up and I met Christ and he washed me clean. I remember that day. Sorry, I, I, that didn't happen for me, but it might happen for you. It might happen quite a while ago. But we've been, and then he says, and you've been sanctified and justified. The kind of words basically saying, you've been made right with God now. Remember the trajectory? You were on a wrong trajectory. You've been made right. Now you're on the right trajectory. And with that comes a blueprint of life that's going to benefit you and those around you. And you've been sanctified. What does that mean? It means to be reconnected to God and redeployed in his name. Some of you know I grew up in India and that's why I named my daughter India. You know, we're going for real, you know, uh, far out there names in our family. So, here, you know, I think I must have been about eight years old. And my mum and dad were part of a boarding school and they taught and they also looked after some of the teenagers. And like lots of schools, it was activities week. And so uh, my dad took a party of uh, older teenagers um, and he took them down to the Taj Mahal and then across to Rajasthan. You know, they were doing a bit of a tour of, uh, of that part of India. They had been gone, I think, four, three or four days. And Mrs. Indra Gandhi, who was the Prime Minister of India at the time, so we're going back to the early to mid-80s, some of you probably weren't alive, you know, she was assassinated and killed. The whole of India rose up. 
and there was rioting on the streets and there was a curfew and the army was deployed. It was really scary. A Sikh man had murdered um, Indra Gandhi. And so the Sikh community was then targeted by the Hindu community. And it was literally like neighbours were turning on neighbours. Horrendous time. We did not know where my dad was. It wasn't in the days of the iPhone where you could just text in, yeah, we're okay, we're in a hotel, da -da -da -da, it's all fine, you know, we're all good. None of that. Three weeks without hearing from dad. I tell you what, we were nervous. The school was nervous. About three weeks in, we heard that they were hold, held up in a, in, a, in a hotel and they were safe. I think my dad was missing in action for six weeks. And I remember the day he came home. They pulled up in a jeep and we were in a quadrangle as young, you know, I was primary school and we were playing with my mates and all of that kind of stuff. And then I looked up and I saw my dad get out of a jeep. And in that moment, everything in me, it was like, dad is back. And I remembered, you know, just chucking this ball down and running across the quadrangle at Areca Knots because my dad had come home and I knew that everything would be okay now. And as I'm running like mad across his quad, I did not see the step. And so as I'm running, fixing my eyes on my dad who's come home, I'm legging it. I hit a step and go airborne. Ever been in those moments? Everything goes slow-mo, doesn't it? No! My dad saw it. And in a flash, he just stepped forward and I went careering into my dad and my dad, just big, he was a big guy, grabbed me and held me to himself. And in that moment, it was like, everything will be okay because dad is back. You know what, guys? I reconnected with dad. For some of us, we need to reconnect with dad. For some, listen, our heavenly father doesn't go anywhere. We do. We drift. Isaiah says our iniquities separate us. But we've been washed. That's where you were. But not anymore. And for some of us this morning, we're like, it's time to reconnect. It's time to experience the embrace of the Father afresh. Because when we do that, we begin to remember who we are. In that moment, I realized and I remembered, I'm a, he's my dad and I'm his son. You see, when Paul pulls the future into the present and then starts to pull the past of what Jesus has done for us into the present, it begins to shape and we begin to realize who we are in the present. Isn't that right? Who are you? Who are you? Well, let's look what Paul says about who we are. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, who are you? Let's have a look at this because I want to kind of land on um, the present choices that we're going to make. But, 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 but to get there, we need to remember who we are. So if you've made a decision for Jesus and you are a follower of Christ, Paul has got something to say to you today. He says this. He says... You are a man or a woman of God. In verse 18, he says this. 
No, 19. He says, do you not know you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? In verse 14 and 15, he says, do you not know you are members of Christ himself? Do you not know who you are? You are full of the Holy Spirit. You are now somebody that has Christ himself dwelling in you. You are a man or a woman who has now been connected and joined to the, to the Almighty, to God himself. And that connection goes way beyond this life. He refers to the body at some point will die. But this connection that you have with him now will go on. He says you're filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 14, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. Who are you? You are a man or a woman who is filled with the very essence and presence of God himself. In other words, you have all the resources of heaven living in you to deal with the present circumstances. Who are you? You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are members of the body of Christ joined together. So it's really important, going back to that first point, what I do is really important because it affects you guys. We are interconnected through Christ. Who are you? Who are you? We're temples and we're members. So now, if we remember now, this is who I am. We can then come to the present issues at hand drawing on the future, drawing on the past, knowing who we are and in the light of all of that address the choices that we have and the pressures that are on us in this current place and in this current time and let's land on this because in verse 12 then Paul is saying hey guys let's be brutally honest there's loads of stuff that's available to us but not all of it is going to be helpful not all of it is going to be um, in line with that future that God has given and promised so he says doesn't he everything in verse 12 is permissible for me but not everything is beneficial I am you and me we are sons and daughters of God full of the Holy Spirit and we have real freedom but let's not use that freedom to drag us back into things that are eventually going to master us and drag us back into our pasts. And that, let's be honest, they're not great pasts. That's what he's saying. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. What's Paul saying? He's saying the choices that we make are really important. Let's make choices that don't take us backward, but let's make choices that move us forward into maturity and greater freedom. And I'm going to let you guys distill what that looks like in your lives today. He then goes on to say, and he's quoting probably a slogan from Corinth, Corinth itself, that the body is what does it say here? Hold on. That food for the stomach and stomach for the food. He's saying, but God will destroy them both. Some people are presenting Paul 
with a design argument. They're saying, yeah, but Paul, we've got desires. We've got desires and they need to be fed. What you'll realize as you read this passage is this, that Paul says, yes, you're right. We are designed with desires, but those desires have parameters. There is a place that they function in. And he starts to talk about passion and love, or should I say intimacy. And the culture is saying, if you're hungry, you feed it with food. I have a desire for sex, and it's okay just to get it on with anyone. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. There is an original design for that gift. And there is, a, 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 there is an original um, environment in which that gift is placed, and it is marriage. And in the very next chapter, Paul begins to expand on what that looks like and the challenges around it. But for some of us, we need to be reminded of the future that we're going to be walking into, the past that God has done for us to make us the people that we're called to be today. But the reality is this. The world would seek to put stuff on us, seek to push us into ways of being and give us an identity that, that, that isn't right. And yet we're full of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants to peel back those layers and expose who we really are. Let's land on this. I heard a great story of a guy, I think he'd bought a house, moved into it. He was a couple of years in this house. And eventually it was time to clear the loft, as you do. And he went into the loft and he was clearing the loft out of loads of junk from the previous uh, inhabitants. And, and he came across this, 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 this painting with a cover over it. He pulled back the cover, it was full of dust, and he took this painting, he came down the ladder and came into the, maybe the dining room in the light of day, and he got a damp cloth and he began to wipe this painting down. It was covered in dust, and as he wiped it down, he was like, wow, this is quite an unusual painting. He knows nothing about art. So he takes it to um, an antique dealer, and the dealer looks at it and he says, I don't know about this painting, but this looks like, it looks pretty old. It looks pretty expensive. I think you need to take it down to the museum and let them have a good look at it. So off he trots to the museum and he goes to the, one of the curators, gets an appointment, brings his painting in. They say, the curator's like, this is really unusual. The framework itself is incredible. This is an unusual painting. We need to investigate this painting. So they lay it down and they x-ray it, as you do. They, they put up the x-ray. They begin to see another image underneath all the layers of paint. It's like somebody has painted a painting and then through the years, and they've got dating back a couple of hundred years at least, other artists have come along and thought, yeah, we don't like that, but we'll just do this with it. And two or three times, other artists have painted on this canvas. The curators were like, no, no, we need to strip back this paint and let's get a look at the original. And so that's what they do. And the way that they do it, they do it very gently so that, so that the original is not distorted or ruined. And they pour certain chemicals on and they started very carefully to strip back this painting until the original was there. The original was a Rembrandt, probably worth 30 million quid. He didn't even know 
it was there. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to uncover the original in you. The original design, the original life that God designed for you and for me. And the reality in Corinth and the reality of today is this. The world would seek to put more paint on the canvas. The Holy Spirit wants to peel that back and say, no, this is the way to live. Let's discover who we're called to be. Let's discover how to make better decisions in the light of pressure and in the light of what society would say over us. Let's live in the light of the future that God's called us to. Let's remember the past of what Christ has done. He's washed us. He's got us ready. And so let's now look at the choices in the light of the trajectory we're on and say, I'm not going to live like that, but I'm going to live like this.